Welcome everyone, those of you in the overflow, God bless you this morning. Hope you've had a, a good worship service thus far. Uh, Perry, Oklahoma Church on the Square, Pastor Brian, Tina, we love you all so much. We continue to pray for God's blessings upon your work there in, in Perry. Uh, all of you, open your Bibles together to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. We're in the middle of a, of, of a series entitled 24 Hours. We're taking a, a long, slow look at the very last 24 hours of Jesus' life. In this worship service uh, today, we've been singing songs about the cross. And in the scripture this morning and in the message, I, I really want to take you there. I, I want to take you to the cross. There are some things you just have to, have to see personally, some things you have to experience personally. And the cross of Jesus is, is definitely one of those things. My granddaddy was, was L.D. Pearson. I, I love my granddaddy. He never went to church much. While we were at church, he stayed home and watched television. He, he'd watch TV. I would come in from church, he lived right next door to our church, so I'd leave church and run right over to his house and start raiding the, the cookie jar in the kitchen. And I would come and sit down, and my granddaddy would typically say something like, I, I saw a real show tonight. I'd say, really, granddaddy, what'd you see? He'd say, I saw the bionic woman, or six million dollar man, or whatever else came on on Sunday night when we were in church. I saw Bonanza. I'd say, well, well what happened on Bonanza's night, granddaddy? And then here's the thing, you have to know L.D. Pearson. My grandfather would then tell me the entire television show. Uh, you, you, know, you know anybody like this? I, I mean, he would tell it in real time. So if it took an hour for him to watch, it took an hour for him to tell. He would tell it so long that eventually you just you forget to listen. Uh, it's just one of those things where it, it meant so much to him because he saw it. It meant a lot to him because he actually saw this show. It meant less and less to me the more he talked because I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I couldn't imagine it. It just did not mean to me what it meant to him. And sometimes when people hear others talking about the cross of Jesus, my fear is they have the very same kind of response. You aren't there. You haven't seen it. You haven't experienced it personally. And for that reason, the more people talk about it sometimes, the less interested you become. You weren't there. It's a really interesting old spiritual about the cross. And, and many of you have probably heard it. It's called, Were You There? Were You There? And the song over and over continues to ask that question. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? But, but, but you notice... The song never really gives an answer. Instead, it gives this last line that's just so haunting and interesting. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble. If you can actually recognize that you were there, the thought should cause you to tremble. Let me take you there, Luke chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 32. If, if you're trying to track the timeline, and, I, and I'm giving it to you as, as, as well as we can from Scripture, Jesus is going to, to literally die at, at about noon, something like noon, uh, because that's where we're coming up in verse 44 here. So we are in, in the, uh, the hour or so, the moments right before noon now, on the day we call Good Friday, and Jesus is on the cross. And, and, and notice what the Scripture says. Verse 32, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with Jesus. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross 
And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leader scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened to the cross above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But, but the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Take your seats. I've been saying to you that, that you can tell a lot about a man by watching him die. In, in 1993, there were three missionaries, three American missionaries who were living in Panama. They were Dave Mankins, Rick Tenenoff, and, and a fellow named Mark Rich. Mark Rich happened to be a, a boyhood friend, a good friend of Mark Riggenbach in, in, in our church. These three men were missionaries, and, and they were in their homes when Colombian guerrillas came in on January 31st, 1993, and kidnapped them right out of their homes. Now, these were young men in, in their early 20s. They were married, and they had children. The men were kidnapped and, and, and taken away by the guerrillas, by, by the Colombian men. They were taken and held for ransom, something like $5 million that the kidnappers were asking for. Other than that, no one knew where they were being kept. No one knew what happened. For, for over eight years, there was, there was no word. Finally, the families had, a, had funerals simply to have the closure. They assumed that their husbands were dead, and they were. They were. What you need to understand, though, is, is that one of the men who was a kidnapper, one of the men who took uh, th these three, his name was Alberto, and he was very young. He, when he was 11 years old, was orphaned, and these guerrillas literally, literally took this 11-year-old boy and taught him to be a killer. They taught him how to kill. And so he's actually a very young man himself as he begins to guard these three men, Mark Rich and, and, his, and his men. Alberto literally watched these men for five months. In five months, they moved camp 20 times. And Alberto was, was brutal to these three missionaries. He, he was brutal. But Alberto says that no matter what he did to them, they continued to love him. And he said it, it, it was really confusing to him. They read the Bible all the time. They each had their Bibles, and they read their Bibles constantly out loud to Alberto. 
They read verses of salvation. They read verses about forgiveness. They read verse after verse after verse. They had nothing else to do but read Scripture and sing. And so they read Scripture and they would sing. And they would talk to Alberto about Christ. They would talk to Alberto about how God will forgive your sins and cast him into the deepest sea. They continued to talk to Alberto. And he said at the time it only made him angry. He hated God, he said. And he hated these men. So he would just become more and more brutal. He took their Bibles one day and burned them right before their eyes. Burned their Bibles. Do you think for a minute that stopped them? Because they said, Alberto, we've hidden those words in our hearts. And they would quote psalm after psalm after psalm. Large chunks of scripture they knew by heart. And they would continue every single day to live lives of, of scripture. Alberto says that the day came when he was ordered to kill them. And they knew that it was the day that they would die. They've been prisoners now for five months. Before Alberto killed these men, he forced them to dig their own graves. So get this picture. You have three American missionaries with children at home and wives and parents who haven't heard from them and now will never hear from them again. These men are digging their own graves. What do you think they did? They dug and they sang. They sing an old hymn called, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness as they dug and dug and dug. When they were finished digging, Alberto killed them one at a time. Boom, boom. Buried them. But you want to know something amazing? Alberto became a Christian. Alberto became a Christian because of the way these men died. Do you see that? Because of what they shared with him of Christ, because of the word of God, but because of three men who returned every brutal act, every, every cursing word, they returned it all with love. And Alberto came to Christ. Alberto eventually sought out these families to ask for forgiveness. And he also thought that they should know how their loved ones died. I'm telling you, you can learn a lot about what's in a man by watching him die. And the scripture records that on the day Jesus died, there, there were mobs of people around. There were mobs of people, a crowd of people. It was a very, very public execution. But, but there turns out to be two men who had uh, front row seats, so to speak, with the crucifixion. They were the, the, the criminals. And Scripture continues to call them that. They are criminals. And they're designated as criminals over and over, set apart Jesus, of course. He had done nothing wrong. And everyone knows, everyone knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. But these men are, are, are criminals. We really don't know anything else about them. This is the only place that they're mentioned in Scripture, right here at the cross, two men. They're speculation. There's speculation that perhaps these two thieves had something to do with Barabbas. Maybe they were a part of Barabbas' gang, so to speak, because they would have been in prison with Barabbas, and they were all scheduled to be executed today, Good Friday. You understand that? These two men were scheduled for this execution, just like Barabbas. So it's possible that these two men somehow have something to do with, with Barabbas. 
Other than that, we don't know a thing about them. They just are snatched out of the pit and thrust into the street and forced to carry crosses with another man named Jesus. Now, when Matthew and Mark tell this story, they both point out that both of these criminals, for a time, they ridiculed Jesus. Both criminals, for a time, they mocked Jesus. They, they, they joined in the same kind of mocking and joking that, that, that everybody else did. Jesus, if you're really a king, save yourself. While you're at it, save us. Both men had the same sort of mocking. However, one of them experiences a, a turning point, and that's what makes this story so very, very interesting. We often talk about the thief on the cross, but, but actually don't forget there were two thieves on crosses that day, one crucified on either side of, of Jesus. And, and it's really interesting to think about that. I want to take you to the cross today. I, I want to take you to, to Calvary. It, it's called the place of the skull. I want you to go there. I want you to see yourself there. I'm asking you to find your cross. There are three crosses on the hill that day. One of those crosses belongs to you. One of those crosses is, is, is your cross. And honestly, I'm asking you to figure that out. I want you to decide which one of those crosses is yours. Now, one cross, obviously, is, is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He is the very expression of God's love. Scripture says in Romans chapter 5 that, that God showed his love. He demonstrates his love in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So even in other places in Scripture, when the Scripture describes Jesus, he's always set apart from the rest of us. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand? Jesus dies on the cross, and it has everything to do with sin, but not his sin. This is the cross of the one who dies who has no sin. No sin of his own. And it's a theme throughout Scripture. It's a theme throughout this story. Jesus has no sin. He's lived an entire life from, from infancy to young adulthood, and he never, ever sins. He suffers temptation just like we all suffer temptation, but he never, ever yields to temptation. This is the only human being who's ever lived a sinless life. Understand. This cross in the middle, this cross that belongs to the man named Jesus, this is the cross of a man who has no sin, who knows no sin. And that is why he and he alone is qualified to take your place on the cross. He alone can die as a sacrifice for all of the world's sins. He who knew no sin became sin itself so that we could become the righteousness of God. You understand? He has no sin. No sin whatsoever. But there are two other crosses. Two other crosses. Find your cross here, my friend. The, the second cross belongs to the man that you've got to recognize. He dies in his sin. That, that first thief, he dies in his sin. It's a really, really uh, amazing question. Anybody have any idea where I put my Bible? We're going to have to run the video back and watch it. I had to start out with it. Here we go. I apologize. Yeah. 200 people couldn't find my Bible. Yeah. Did you know where it was? Thank you. Thank you. I want you to pay attention to verse 40. Verse 40. 
There are two thieves, there are two other crosses. And this one cross who, who dies in his sin, that first thief who, who mocks Jesus, he continues to mock Jesus all the way up to the end. But that other thief, he has a turning point. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he asks a question of that thief who dies in his sin. And the question's amazing. The other criminal protests in verse 40. Don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? Don't you fear God even when you're dying? Let that question hang there in your mind for a moment. Don't you fear God even when you're dying? See, this is a thief who dies in his sin. He's a criminal. He's guilty. He's a despicable human being. He's probably absolutely worthy of everything he's getting this day. This is a bad guy, rotten to the core, and he's dying in his sin. And the other thief says, well, what's wrong with you? Don't you fear God even when you're dying? It's just a question I would want to ask the whole world. Don't you fear God? Even when you're sentenced to die? Because truly, every one of us is sentenced to die. Every single one of us is dying. You have a terminal disease. Don't you understand? It's called sin. The wages of sin is death. Everybody on earth, don't you understand? Nobody gets out of here alive. We're all going to die, and, and after you die, you will stand before God. Don't you fear God even when you're dying? The, the thing is, you just don't think you're dying yet. You don't feel like you're dying yet. And so there's no sense of urgency and truly no fear of God. No fear of God. We live in an entire culture that these days has absolutely no fear of God, no respect for sacred things. God is mocked every single day in every corner of our culture. There is no fear of God. And, and honestly, even with, with you good church people, some of you live a life that, that shows no sign of fear of God. You just live your life as you please, you enjoy your sin, you draw others into sin, and you give no thought to God, no respect for him, no real trembling beneath the fact that one day you'll die and stand before him. You just don't think you're dying soon. You just don't imagine that you're dying soon. But, but here's the thing. Here is this thief who's dying, and he knows he's dying. He is as close to dead as, as a man could possibly be. And yet, even in this moment, even in this moment of death, he continues to mock. He continues to show no fear of God and absolutely no repentance. How can anyone get all the way to that moment, that moment of death, that moment right there just inches before he stands before God? How can anybody in their sin refuse, refuse to repent and show fear of God? Don't you fear God, the criminal says, even when you're dying? Do you understand? This man dies in his sin. And honestly, some of you in this room right here, in the sound of my voice, you will die in your sin. You don't plan on it. You don't think about it much. But I'm telling you, you will. You will. That thought should cause you to tremble. Some of you were to find your place at Calvary. If I could take you there and you could find your cross, your cross is the one that belongs to the man who dies in his sin because some of you will die in your sins, although you shouldn't, you need not, you will. Because you'll make that choice. 
Now, there's one more cross, three crosses. Don't forget, there's, there's the man who has no sin. There's the man who dies in his sin. And then there's the, the man, the thief, who dies forgiven. Now, this is a really, really interesting story, a really interesting conversion, because this man is as close to dead as you can be as well. I mean, this man is as close to dead as he could possibly be, and he has been a rotten guy all of his life. Even he admits in this moment, I deserve exactly what I'm getting. I deserve this. I deserve this cross. I deserve this suffering. I deserve this death. I I am guilty. I I deserve everything that's happening to me. There's no question there. This is a rotten guy, a bad guy. He has been bad his whole life. And there's nobody on this day who stands there and defends him. Nobody who stands there and grieves for him. This is a bad guy who deserves exactly what he's getting. Exactly what he's getting. But something happens in his heart. Something happens to this second thief on the cross. Something happens as he watches Jesus die. You can learn a lot about a man by watching him die. And this thief on the cross, the the only thing that he's seen of Jesus is watching Jesus die. But what does he see? What does he observe? Well, he knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. Jesus has done nothing wrong. And yet the man who's done nothing wrong hangs on his cross and says what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The man who's done nothing wrong, as he dies, he prays, Father, forgive them. You see, this thief, he sees that. He he hears that. Everybody else cries out. The the other thieves are mocking and bitter and railing and cussing. But but Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't say a word. The soldiers, they they gamble. They throw dice in order just to to take custody of Jesus' clothes. Can you imagine the man who walked out that day wearing Jesus' clothes? There's a sermon there. Uh, Soldiers tossing dice and, and making fun of Jesus, offering him wine. And Jesus continues to hang there and say not a word. Something about the way Jesus died, that that second thief, he he has to change. Comes a point where he stops mocking. There there comes a point where he stops mocking and starts believing. There's a point where the other other thief is still mocking and crying out, and the thief says, listen, listen, you've got to stop that. Why? Why would you continue to make fun of this man? Don't you fear God? Even when you're sentenced to die, don't you fear God? And then what does he say? What does he say to Jesus? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is a dying man hanging on a cross next to Jesus, and all he can do is turn around and rattle out the words, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Well, it's a little bit late for that. Is that what Jesus says? It's a little bit late for that. No, Jesus says, I, I, I tell you the truth, I promise you, today, today you'll be with me in paradise. T- today you will be with me in paradise. This is a really interesting picture of salvation, and it boils it down to, to, to its bare essentials, and that's why it's such an important picture. This man gets saved. It, it, it's at the very, very last minute very last minute. It's, it's an instant, instantaneous and immediate salvation. 
He's as saved as you and I are. This man is saved, although he's never been to church and never going to go to church. You understand that? Salvation really doesn't have anything to do with coming to church. Thief on the cross never, ever goes to church. He's never going to do that. So understand, his salvation is completely apart from anything he's done because all he's done is sin. His whole life, all he's been is a criminal. All he's ever amounted to is to be a sinner. So his salvation has absolutely nothing to do with his deserving it. He deserves his death, and he deserves his condemnation for all eternity in hell. That's what he deserves. But Jesus says, I promise you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Do you understand? That's salvation. That's what it looks like. And honestly, that's what it looks like for every single one of us. It has nothing to do with the good that you've done. Because you're really not as good as you think you are. I run into people all the time, and they imagine that salvation is kind of like a bank account where every time you do something good, you're making a deposit. And then when you do something wrong, you make a little withdrawal. But as long as your deposits add up higher than your withdrawals, then somehow you'll make heaven in the end. Do you understand? That's not how it works. The very first time you sinned, you went so far in the hole. You understand? You'll never buy yourself out now by being good. You're a sinner. You're already a sinner. And the scripture says the wages of sin is death. You're not going to change what you are by trying to become something different on your own. You can't save yourself. You cannot earn your way to heaven by doing good deeds. The thief on the cross is never going to do a good deed. He's not going to do a thing to deserve salvation. He does not deserve salvation. Did you understand? Of course, there are folks who talk a lot about baptism, and this becomes the real case study here. For those who often teach that, that baptism, the very act of being in the water is what saves a person, this is the one case study that they have difficulty with. The thief on the cross is never baptized. He's never going to be baptized. I heard one guy say, now just because the Bible doesn't say it doesn't mean he wasn't baptized. Seriously? Seriously, he's not baptized. He's just not baptized. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus commands us to be baptized. It's the very first thing a new Christian ought to do. I am not a pastor who makes light of baptism. It is a very important act of obedience and discipleship. It's a wonderful way of identifying with Christ. But it's not what saves us. If I really thought baptism would save you, the minute you walked closer there, I would push you in. I would push you in. If I thought a trip through that water would save you, I would push you in. The thief on the cross is never going to go to church. He's, he's never going to be baptized, and yet he is saved this day. He dies forgiven with all of his sins forgiven. You, I pray, will see this man in heaven. Do you understand? And he won't have a lower place because he never was a deacon. He won't have a lower place because he was never baptized or never went to church or never wrote a check in a tithing envelope. Do you understand? This man is as saved as anybody ever gets. It's glorious, and it's all because of Jesus' goodness. It's because of what Jesus is doing for him. It's actually rather simple. In the same way that he asked the other thief, don't you fear God? You understand, the first thing that happens in this man's life, the man who receives forgiveness, the first thing that happens is that he really does develop a fear of God, a genuine fear of God. In other words, God becomes real to him. 
Not just something that other people talk about. Not just a swear word when you hit your thumb with a hammer. Not just someone that you visit on Christmas and Easter at church. God becomes real. God becomes real. And in order for you to experience salvation, I just got to say the obvious, God's got to be real to you. And you've got to want him. You've got to want God and fear him. Something happens in this, this thief's heart. He goes from sin and mocking to, to genuine belief. And that first step is just the fear of God. A genuine recognition that, that God is real and that, and that I'll stand before him. That somehow my life is accountable to him. God is real and you fear him. It starts there. Some folks call themselves Christians, but they show no evidence of fear of God. Honestly, you can't be a Christian if you don't want God, if you don't fear God. He fears God, and then he believes Jesus. He believes Jesus. Of course it's last minute, but he believes Jesus. He believes. All he gets is Jesus' own word, and Jesus says, I promise you, I promise you. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. That's very personal. I promise you, you'll be with me. Do you understand? He believes Jesus. And then he seeks salvation. He fears God. He believes Jesus. And he, he seeks salvation. He asks, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that that's a good deal. That's a good deal. And that's the deal you want right there, isn't it? You want that kind of salvation. That sounds good to you, doesn't it? You would love to live your whole life and just raise hell and do whatever you want. You really like that idea, don't you? I'll just sort of not fear God till the end. I'm going to wait till the end. Kind of like the thief on the cross, because if the preacher says he's as saved as anybody, then that's how I'm going to do it. That way I get the best of both worlds. I'm going to live on the earth, and I'm going to rip, snort, and I'm going to do it my way, and I'm not going to consider God, I'm not going to follow Christ, I'm not going to give up on any kind of fun, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and then right before I die, I'm going to call on Jesus and get saved. Well, it happens. I've seen it happen. It happens. But you shouldn't count on that. You shouldn't count on that. I'm not about to tell you the story of the young man who said he was going to do that and then dies in a car crash. I'm not going to tell you that story because that's probably less likely to happen to you than, than this kind of story. See, the thing is, you're assuming that in that last moment you would do that. You're assuming that in that last moment, even if you were, you were conscious and alert and could think of it, you're assuming you would. What you don't take into account is what happens spiritually in your life when you live day after day after day with no fear of God and continuing to say no to Christ. You're not factoring in what's happening in your own heart because your heart gets hard. Your heart gets hard. The longer you say no to him, the easier it is to say no to him. And please, don't be foolish. 
There are a whole lot of people who die completely aware and conscious with people praying for them and, and the preacher standing right there begging them and they die in their sins and go to hell. They choose that. They choose it. Because there's a spiritual hardening that takes place. You really can't think that you're going to have a last moment like that. Because now's your time. This is your moment. I just really want to take you to the crosses today. Three crosses. One of those crosses is going to be yours. One of them can't be. That's the cross that belongs to Christ. He's the one who dies with no sin. But there are two other crosses, and I promise you, one of those crosses belongs to you. You're either going to be the one who dies in your sin. Or you can be the one who dies forgiven. One of those crosses belongs to you. That very thought should cause you to tremble. Tremble. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, even in this house today, even in church today, even people listening to a sermon today, Lord, there are hard hearts here. There are men who've been saying no to you for years and years and years, and they still imagine that one day they'll say yes, Lord, but every day that goes by, saying no is easier and saying yes is harder. God, I pray that you would demolish the hardness of the hearts in this place, Lord. The women in this house, Lord, who continue to imagine that because they are so good that somehow they're earning their way somewhere, Lord Jesus. I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would bring our sin before us so that we could absolutely be free of the illusion of our own self-righteousness. Lord Jesus, we all somehow get what we deserve when we are sentenced to die for our sins. We're guilty, we're sinners, and we've earned that. And that's all we'll ever earn by what we do. So Lord Jesus, today, I pray for hearts. I pray for men and women and teenagers, Lord. I pray that there will be people in this house today who God would learn to fear you. You would become real, Lord, and they would begin to tremble before the gospel and tremble before the cross and begin to tremble, Lord, at their own fate if they die in their sins, Lord. I pray that you would teach people to fear you and tremble. Lord, I pray that people would fear you and Christ begin to believe the gospel, begin to believe your promise of forgiveness, your promise that immediately today, instantly, we can be with you. Lord Jesus, I pray for all of these people, Lord, for whom the cross has been a story to tell at Easter. All of these people, Lord, who hear others talk about faith and talk about Christianity, but for them, Lord, it's not that interesting because it doesn't pertain to them. It, it, they've never been there. They've never heard it for themselves. Lord, I pray that today you drag us to the cross, Lord. Bring us to Calvary. Help us to look. Help us to see with our own eyes. Help us to find ourselves there. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you who knew no sin
became sin itself so that we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus, I pray. I pray for people in this house that they would come, kneel at the cross, find forgiveness and freedom. Lord Jesus, I pray this in your holy name. Amen.